You're listening to a Hebrew in Israel podcast with Yoel HaLevi, exploring the language, culture, and history of the Bible. For more information, visit us at hebrewinisrael.net. Hello everyone, you're all here for another episode of Tzor Mikra. This week we have Parashat Ki uh, when you go out, basically, it's a, a chapter that continues the whole subject of the the wars, battles between different groups, and so on. And um, we actually, uh, there's so much in this parasha. There's so much that can be said. So many discussions that can have here, because this is a parasha that's full with filled with a lot of practical discussions about how to fulfill Torah, how to practice Torah, and so on. However, um, this is actually. One of the um, one of the very uh, contra- this actually contains some of the most controversial subjects in the Torah, and I really want to touch on them because I think that uh, adding another another voice uh, to to the discussion is very important. And I also also think from some of the stuff I'm going to say, I think other some people already heard or li- or understood and so on, but it, it might be something new to others. So I really do want to touch on these things. And you understand something. This is material I studied when I was a child, and I remember reading some of this. And the first thing went to my came to mind was like, "What what is going on here? What is this? This is completely wrong. There's something off here." And really, when I think about it, it comes off in many situations as being a problem in in understanding the reality they lived in, and the um, the reality that we need to understand is the reality of then and not the reality of now. We, we as society have undergone so many changes. Even those of us who try to reconstruct the ancient world still hit a massive brick wall in understanding um, the way they saw things. And I've, been, I've been working for many years and trying to break through this, this barrier. And I'm actually, I discovered a very interesting book that tries to do this as well. I'm still working on it, so there's no point in even mentioning it. Um, but the, the there are several discussions here, which some of them can be really, really disturbing. And the first one that we have has to do with prisoners of war, and specifically with women. Now, before I even start reading this, we need to we need to point something out. War is a very unfortunate thing. Period. And as a person who lives in an area where, the, where not too far away from us there is a war zone, and as a person who lives in a country where we have interior struggles between several groups, it's not simple. And war is a very painful thing, especially when you think about what's going on in Syria and Iraq and, and North Africa and all the people who are trying to run away from there. And they're running away for a reason. It's not fake. The problem is the Western world is not trying to solve the problem. It's trying to create even a bigger problem that's going to completely take out of balance what's going on in Europe and, and the society in Europe. So we're trying to go in there and just solve the problem because the world is, especially under American uh, resolutions, have decided to be less involved in what's going on in other countries. This is actually the time to be involved. Previously, it wasn't the time to be involved. Now, actually, it is. So there's a serious mistake here in understanding the dynamics of the Middle East and North Africa. But in any case, in a situation of war, um, not everyone is killed. And most of the people who are prisoners of war, uh, in, in situations like this, are mostly women and children. 
And we all know what can happen to a woman when she's taken captive. We all know what, what's described, what described on the news with the Yazidi girls, and the Yazidi women, and how they're being enslaved and so on. And the reality that we see, we hear of from the news, and we have to be very careful what we trust in the news and what we don't trust and so on. And it's very also very unfortunate that one of the very few people who's actually doing anything to save the Yazidi is actually a Jewish man, a millionaire or a billionaire from the United States who's, who's putting effort into trying to save them while the rest of the world stands aside and is more involved in trying to condemn Israel for presumed, presumably genocide and and ethnic cleansing, which most of them probably don't even know what these words mean. But in a situation of war, people are taken captive. And we're talking about wars which are mostly fought between cities. Back then, the majority of wars were fought between cities, so the men defended the walls, and many men were killed. Also, if there was a frontal war where they actually left the city walls, it was mostly men, so usually who was left behind were women and children and the elderly. And the Torah says, Ki lo If you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them in your hand and you take their captivity. See in the captivity, a woman of, of beauty. is kind of an interesting combination of two adjectives side by side, but it basically means a woman of good looks. Beautiful, basically. You would lust for her, you will want her. And you'll take her for yourself as a wife. I remember reading this as a kid, it must have been fifth or sixth grade, and I went, huh? What is the Torah trying to tell us here? But when we burst through that wall of trying to figure out what, what, what went on in the ancient world, we realize this is actually a very, very humane act. Why is it a humane act? Because most women, especially if they were very beautiful, and this is what the Torah also points out, a woman of beauty, they will be taken as slaves. And I don't have to go into descriptions of what happens to women like that. And the Torah actually says something very simple. You don't walk in, see a beautiful woman, do whatever you want and dump her. No. The humanity here comes in the expression of you treat her as a human being. And she's a person. If you want her, you need to marry her. Okay? You don't just... Do whatever you want and then dump her to the elements. Unfortunately, back then there were no social services. And if a woman was in, in, in trouble, she would have to hope for the mercy of people that surround her. Most women were unprotected. And this is why it was very common that when a woman got married, there would be a marriage contract. Okay, the ketubah that we use today is really a marriage contract that to protect the rights of the woman. It wasn't invented by, by Jews. It was actually in existence thousands of years before even the giving of the Torah. Well, not thousands of years, but we find contracts like this uh, from a very early stage as well. These are marriage contracts, for example, the marriage contracts of the Nuzi, and there are other contracts that which, which were discovered. And the Torah says, you want her, you need to marry her. And if you don't want, if you take her, she does acts that cause you to want to keep away from her. The thing here as well is that he's not even allowed to, to have any, any physical contact with her before a certain period passes. She has the right to mourn her family. She does acts of growing her fingernails and shaving her head. By the way, shaving the head for those who have 
read the articles that are written about shaving the beard and so on. Shaving the head for a woman was also a sign of mourning. This wasn't just make, to make her ugly. Okay, you have to understand that hair was considered to be the beauty of a woman. Even today, women have beautiful hair. It adds something to their personality, you know, the, the way they look, personality, so-called. And the, the point here is the person, is the man is being kind of turned off from wanting her. And only after this period, the cooling period the man goes through, where he can consider taking her as a, as a wife. And the time where he sees her when she's, in, when she's ugly, when she's not pretty, where she's wearing all her jewelry and so on. Only after that, if he's 100% sure he wants to take her as a wife, only then is he allowed to have physical contact with her. And, if, and it says in verse 14, if you do not want her, now this is not necessarily after the physical contact. This, is, this can be argued as being before the physical contact. And if, vehaya imlo, using the im particle, the f particle, to indicate a second scenario is a very common thing in legal text. If you do not want her, you send her away. She is a free person. You let her go. Let her be. Okay? So this is very, very different than what went on in the ancient Near East. This is actually, as strange as it may sound, is extremely humane. Because a woman, if she's left to the elements, if she has no family to protect her, back then there was no such thing as a strong, independent woman. It did not exist. Women could be independent and so on, but at the end of the day, they were considered to be a weaker part of society. So this is a very, very protective act that really, really changes the the way people understood how to treat women back then. This is extremely different than what we see in the rest of the ancient world. If a woman was taken captive, she would be a slave. She could be she can be abused in so many horrible ways. I don't even start going there. And this is actually extremely humane for for the for the details of war back then. Back then, you took you took spoils of wars. It was yours, and that was it. So the Torah really changes the dynamic. But Torah doesn't say you have to take her. Okay, the Torah they, they might decide. Listen, you know, we have this whole bunch of women here. We we literally have nothing to do with them, so they'll let them let them go, set them free. So this is very different than the ancient world. It's very different from our world as well. But today, you know, if there's even a war, no one would ever consider to do something like this. But still, we don't say you have to do it. It's a very important point as well. Then we have the next controversial subject, which has raised a lot of discussions, a lot of arguments. And I actually had a discussion about this with someone um, a couple of days ago. One of my students was uh, having a discussion about this with me because there's someone that they know who... Uh, wants to take more than one wife. I'm going to, from the get-go, I'm going to say it's not a good idea to take a second wife. First of all, because it creates a massive mess. It creates a huge mess in the family, in the household. It creates, it can create envy between the two wives. And believe me, it happens even with wives which are very religious and they're pious people and they don't get agitated that easily. It's still, because... Women feel, and I had this discussion with several women, just to try to understand the perspective of a woman about this. Women will feel, betray, feel betrayed. Even if they know the husband still loves them, they will feel betrayed. And there has to be some kind of important, something important to, for, the, for them to accept the idea of a husband take a second wife. And really, one of the things that we do find is that a second wife is usually taken, and this is, this is how it appears in many sources, usually taken when the first wife, the prime wife, 
can't have any children. That's a situation where the, where the prime wife or the first wife would agree to, ha to have another woman enter the house. And that's really the main situation we find. We're looking at documentation, for example, in, in Jewish cultures where they married more than one wife. In many cases, it was mostly related to wanting, an, um, wanting children or wanting more children. If the first wife bore one or two children and they felt this wasn't enough, the husband and the wife will come to an agreement to bring another woman into the family. But it was usually done in agreement. The husband never forced this on his wife. That's number one. Number two, economics. Most people had one wife because no one, you had to be rich to be able to have more than one household. We're talking about double everything, double the houses, the woman, what, this woman has her, her own room, this woman has her own room. And back then it wasn't, you know, people didn't live in two, three story houses and there's a, you can separate them and so on or you know, turn the first story for one family, the second story for another family. Back then most people lived in small houses where there was one room and a yard or maybe a, uh, you know, a, a joint housing that there were several families living together in, in like this one building and so on. But back then you had to have the economic ability to to have more than one wife. It wasn't something people practiced every day. However, with, with all this said, the Torah does not forbid polygamy. And first of all, what we have here in Deuteronomy is very clear. It says, If a man has two wives, okay, it's a very, very clear statement. If a man has two wives, it doesn't say if a man has another wife or something. No, it takes a reality, and the reality is people could have more than one wife. And as we said, the reasoning can be of different reasons. Some people were rich enough to have more than one wife, but back then the convention was that having more than one wife was normal. Today, in our world, especially with Christian influence, that Christianity sees marrying, even marrying relatives, I mean, marrying cousins, most Westerners frown at this, was a normal thing. People married their cousins. Most people married very close in their family because most people didn't live, you know, people didn't travel the way they do today. You know, I, mar I, I grew up in the north. I married someone who lives in Jerusalem. Back then, it was mostly done by rich people that they have connections somewhere else and then went to marry to an important family and so on. Most people, if they lived in a village, they married somewhere in the nearby village. And in many cases, it was people from the same family. First cousins, second cousins, and, and people were relatively close. So the conventions back then were very, very different. But the Torah takes a, a reality situation here. If a man has two wives, one is beloved, one is hated. Why beloved and hated? It really relates to what's said at the end, that even if the man, uh, the man's firstborn is born from the hated wife, he still has to give that child a, uh, the, the rights of the firstborn. It doesn't mean that necessarily the situation has to be one is beloved, one is hated. It might be a situation both are loved at the same level as well. The Torah takes a contrast here of what's more difficult. That you have this wife and you have these children, you don't really like them, but still you have to. It says, and they gave they bore him children, the beloved one and the hated one, and the, and the first one was born to the hated one. And I don't really have to go into the discussion here. Firstborn gets twice of everything. This is the this is the power of firstborn. This is something we see over and over again. But the discussion is: so where does the prohibition of polygamy come from? So first of all, in Judaism itself, people don't, at least people can't, today in Israel, it's polygamy is forbidden by law. But the, but the origin of, of, of no polygamy in Judaism 
especially when it comes to European Jewry, had to do with a thing known as the Cherem de Rabbeinu Gershom, the prohibition of Rabbi Gershom, which was a prohibition created uh, in uh, in the area of, in, in Germany uh, about a thousand years ago. And there was a reason for it. The reason was because they had difficulty, that they had a lot of single men, and too many men marrying more than one wife, and there were too many single men around with no wives. So there was a lack of women. But also there was a, a tension with the Christians. The Christians, especially in Germany, uh, by this point Germany was a Christian country, uh, though there might have been still some uh, some older uh, religions there. It was so, Anyhow, Christianity forbade marrying than one, more than one wife. Again, there's the whole discussions, and some of these discussions originate uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I'll point out something in a moment. And there might have been probably also a tension with Christians in regards to uh, what's allowed and what's forbidden in marrying, and they saw that Jews married more than one wife, and there was a reason for hatred, so it might have been a reason why, they, why he forbade marrying more than one wife. But what we have as well is a discussion that originates in the Dead Sea Scrolls and actually passed on to the Karaites. And first of all, an interesting statement by uh, Rabbi Tuvia ben Eliezer from the book Lekach Tov on Deuteronomy 21.15, which is basically the verses that we're dealing with. It says, How many mistakes the Karaites have made when they say do not that, that, a, that a man to, to her sister they should not take. This is Leviticus 18, and we'll talk about that in a moment. That those mean that mean that means the prohibition of two wives, and this meaning more marrying more than two wives is in the Torah and the prophets and the writings that the Israel used to, that Israel will marry more than more than one wife. In other words, that people polygamy was a practice well known. We find this practice and so on. In some of the situations we have, like for example, Elkanah who marries two two women. But it, it, you see, one can argue that Chana was the original, the first wife, and Penina was married because Chana couldn't bear any children. So even there, one can argue that there was a reason he married more than one wife, but we find that marrying more than one wife was permissible, and Elkanah is clearly described as a righteous man. So what is the deal with, um, with Leviticus 18? Leviticus 18 says... That first of all, the verse 18, the context is relatives. I, I have to stress this. The context in Leviticus is relatives. Okay? Not marrying, not marrying, not having sexual relations with sisters, with brothers, with aunts, with uncles, and so on. And the context here as well is also immediately after uh, not take not take the daughter and, and, and her mother and so on. So it also refers to as it says. In verse 18, and a woman to her sister will not take, to either gather them together or to make them enemies, because sometimes the, uh, the, the, the two wives are considered to be tsarot, the enemies of one another, to uncover her, cover, to uncover her covering, during her, during her life. Now we have to break this down. First of all, so, one can argue that Ishai Lachota is a, a type of language, like for example, Ishel Reo, Ishel Achiv. Sometimes we find that the word brother or sister are used to indicate the idea of that you're together with someone and something and you call them your brother or your sister, even though they're not really your brother or your sister. However, here it doesn't seem necessarily, well, one can argue, it is one can argue, it isn't, but I will argue that it does not necessarily have to be this borrowed way of doing things. This actually might be the situation where sister literally means sister, especially because the context here is relatives. 
and you will not take them to to mountain to to compile them together or to make them enemies to un, to uncover a covering obviously relating to what's said earlier about uncovering certain parts of the body usually the word erva is the covered area usually means below the belt during her life and it's understood that during her life means that as long as you're married to one woman her sister is forbidden on you but the moment if she dies you can marry her sister okay that's the way it's understood in rabbinic Judaism and, and by most people however the Dead Sea Scrolls we find I think it's the book of uh, it's the, the book of the, uh, the book the scroll of the temple temple scroll where we find the following the ones who build barriers or walls, which is a very clear indication of the Pharisees, the Gzerot and Takanot, which went after the Tzav. Now this relates to a verse in Isaiah 28, I think. A command to a command, a, a, a line to a line, if we just do a literal translation. Um, those who preach, that say, preach to the preaching, which probably is a hint to Ezekiel, Hatefel Daron, they are caught, in court, usually means to be caught in the sense of being caught in a sin, in two with prostitution, basically an act which is a, a forbidden sexual act, to take two women in their, in, during their life. Now, there's a whole discussion here about the concept of Bechayehem, it could be that the the scroll that they used, uh, the, the Leviticus scroll that they used for this cult, the, sorry, the sect, uh, read lo but bechayehem that they had some variant that they used, and bechayehem is a masculine ending. Uh, but we need to understand something about the, la- the Hebrew they used in the Second Temple that a hem can also mean hen. So there are several things that were understood from this. There were some people understood from this that because it's masculine, it means that the man is never allowed to marry again. The moment he marries one woman, he is bound to her his entire life, which brings the discussion about the oath some people take when they get married, the oath of the uh, to death, death do us part. Um, and there were, I think there were some people who even practiced this to a level, used to practice this to a level where they would, if they married one woman, they would never marry again, even if the wife passes away. Bechayehem uh, can also be understood as feminine, because in the Dead Sea Scroll Hebrew, and this is uh, by Elisha Kimon as well, in his book about the, the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that hem can also be the parallel of hen, which is the feminine. So during their life, meaning the, the life of the women, in other words, it could be that the people who read the, Dead, the people of the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Yachad misunderstood the meaning of the biblical text because they thought it meant masculine, where it really meant feminine during their lives. In other words, that as long as as long as the women are alive, they're supposed to marry another woman. One can also argue that they thought it meant sister. There's a lot of little different ideas here, and this, this recording is not really for he, people who actually know a lot of Hebrew. But for those who do understand Hebrew, I hope they understand what I mean here. That there are different ways of reading this text and so on. The interpretation of words and, 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 and their context and things. And that really is a very interesting book called Comparative Philology in the Text of the Old Testament by James Barr, which really goes into the whole discussion, one of the most important books in the discussion of understanding words in context and, how they, and what they mean. 
But in other, in, in any case, so the carrots weren't really the ones who invented the idea of not having polygamy. It dates back to a much earlier stage. However, it's, it's, it seems to be very clear from what was practiced in the ancient world that they did, they did practice polygamy, that the understanding of Leviticus 18 has been distorted either by misunderstanding the meaning of the word achot, which means sister, or the mis- a, a different version of the text bechayeha, bechayehem, bechayehen. However, the text that we have today in front of us, which is, by the way, the Masoretic text, which is, by the way, the majority of the texts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls are similar, if not identical, to the Masoretic text, which means the Masoretic text was the most popular one, so it seems, and therefore, therefore is understood to be the mainstream version. Uh, there's a very interesting book, uh, Textual Criticism of, of, of the Old Testament, I think it's called, by, um, by Immanuel Tov, worth reading. He, he covers a lot of the things that people have debates about. Look, we found Dead Sea Scrolls this. It obviously means and the, Masoret, the Masoretic text is wrong. However, he, he organizes this. It's really worthwhile reading because he, he, he proves that many of the texts that people use to say, oh, look, there's a different text here, are usually from the margin, which seem to be more what they call vulgar texts in the, in the academic world. But what it seems to be is that Ishara Chota is literally a woman to her sister, and the fact that Jacob married uh, sisters is not really a point of argument because it was prior to the giving of the Torah and there, and, uh, there are plenty of, plenty of things that we find that they did which are forbidden by Torah, and uh, which, by the way, indicates that the, the, these stories pres- came before the giving of the Torah, which means they were not written by someone who already had a Torah in front of them, for those who uh, abide to the, uh, to the document hypothesis. And the, um, there's really not much to say here. This interpretation of prohibit, prohibiting polygamy takes a, a long stretch on, a lo- on, on the verses and what they actually mean. The the last subject that we have here is the subject of the Ben Soreru More, the, a child who rebels against his parents. And I think the, the biggest discussion here is, what does it mean that a child is executed? <laughs> what does it mean a child is executed? So first of all, we have to understand something about the setting of the ancient world. In the ancient world, a father of a family had the right to punish, even by execution. Here the Torah does something very different. You as the father do not have the right to punish a child. It is given to the community, to the elders, to the courts. That's number one. It's very different than the ancient world. Also, why do you execute a child that, first of all, what exactly is a child? We're talking about a five-year-old. Probably means a member of family, probably a, a, a young adult, or someone who's very aware of what they're doing. And we're not talking about a teenager who doesn't want to listen to his parents and so on. We're talking about someone who's violating core elements of family structures. This is a child that undermines the authority of parents to an extent where it harms the family. It's a child that eats and eats a lot of meat and drinks a lot of wine. Basically, a child that behaves in a very uh, violent, very... I think the word is abhorrent or something like that, in a very, very inappropriate way. This is not a teenager that, that disobeys his parents and doesn't, you know, and sneaks out of the house or, I don't know, goes and drinks alcohol. So actually, alcohol might be it. But the main point here is that we're not talking about just a misbehaving child. This is a child that violates codes of society. 
a child that violates the structure of family to, to a point where he's endangering the entire family and the factor is also endangering the, the tribal system. So a child like this is not executed. Oh, look, I have a misbehaving child here. I'm going to kill you. Another thing that we also find, an interesting point that I read about this is that this is more of a hanging threat. That this is, this is a threat to the child. It's like saying to a kid, you know, if you don't behave, I'll tell your father what you did today. That's kind of a threat a mother would use. This is not necessarily something that has to be practiced. This is supposed to be a threat that when the child is warned, he's told that, you know, if you carry on like this, we have the right to kill you. Now, for us today, oh, killing and so on. Yeah, back then, it was something people were, were less scared about. Remember, the Bible is a relatively violent book. And back then, uh, people were a little bit more violent than they are today. Today, we've, we've softened, which I think is a good thing. So there's really an opinion that I read. I don't necessarily know if this opinion is accurate or truthful when it comes to the biblical text. But the, the it seems to me this is more of a threat. It was never actually implemented. If it was implemented, it must have been a rare situation. Um, so again, this is another, we have three awkward or very different than our world situations described in the Tanakh. And I hope this at least gives some kind of a direction for understanding these things better. Again, as I said, I am not promoting polygamy. I am actually promoting monogamy. I think that it's, uh, at least in our world, it's a very unhealthy thing to do. And, um... Also, you know, everything else here, these, these, are, these are situations, again, these are many situations that most of us will not live in anyhow, so these are not really things that we have to worry about, but these are questions of cultural context that many of us probably ask, ask ourselves, and hopefully these at least give a direction to build up a, a, a good answer, something that will help out people understanding the text better. And as usual, I hope people enjoyed this recording. Next recording is Kitavo, and uh, I want to wish everyone a wonderful week, and if you hear this is before Shabbat, Shabbat Shalom.